is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is the Full Story Newsroom Edition, where our editors discuss the news of the week. People are increasingly choosing to switch off the news. Even when you casually browse social media on the way to work, it can lead you to photos of violence in Gaza, updates on the war in Ukraine, and headlines about the climate crisis. So at a time when it's so much more important to pay attention, how can we resist the urge to tune it all out? Today, I'm speaking with Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and National News Editor Patrick Keneally about how they tackle news fatigue. It's Friday, the 10th of November. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, Lenore. Morning. Good morning, Patrick. Morning. So, Lenore, the news seems especially bleak at the moment. Both you and Patrick are immersed in the news cycle. Do you ever get fatigued? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think at the moment the news is very hard to watch and that's a pretty confronting thing for me to say as I am the editor of a news site. But it's true, you know, Israel-Gaza, Ukraine, climate crisis, mass shootings, refugee crises. I mean, they're all big stories. They're all stories we have to cover. They're all stories people need to know about and want to know about. But all of them are really distressing. And I think that raises a lot of questions for us in the media. It kind of creates this awful tension for us as news producers and for you, for our listeners. And we have to kind of think about how we react when awful things happen and our humanity demands that we should pay attention. But Also, our kind of sense of self-preservation sometimes says, turn away, protect yourself. It's a real dilemma. Look, I think it is a dilemma because your natural instinct as someone who works in the news and who believes in the power of of journalism to create change in society, it's important to, to, to get the news out there, to make people understand what's going on in the world, to read it and to be across it yourself and to understand what's going on. But at the same time, you sometimes question, is this also just making people turn away Mm. from what's going on in the world? Because it is so overwhelmingly bleak and and horrible, the news that's happening at the moment. But, uh, you know, my my natural instinct is that, of course, we need to, you know, 
broadcast and we need to tell people about what's going on in Gaza, what's going on with climate change. So it's a dilemma that we're in. Mm, And I think it's exacerbated because, you know, once upon a time people might have seen terrible images once a day when they watch the evening news or read about them once a day over breakfast in their one hometown newspaper. But now we get them all day, every day on our screens and on our devices, not just us in the news media, but everybody. And I think that really exacerbates this tension. Yeah, even looking back to, you know, I remember when I first started getting interested in the news in the early 90s and there were terrible things happening in the world there, Yugoslavia, Mm. Darfur, you know, loads of of Mm. really terrible genocides. But we, we were not exposed to it in the same way. It wasn't ever present. It was, uh, you know, in the newspaper in the morning on the ABC radio bulletins and then on the 6 or 7 p.m. news that night. But now we are so much more exposed to it because news is in your pocket, on your mobile phone, it's on Twitter, it's everywhere. So it's it's got harder to turn off um, at the same time that it seems like we're headed for this, you know, period of permacrisis where you've got global warming plus, you know, the breakdown of democracy in the US and all these other things happening at the same time. Lenore, of course, not everyone gets their news directly from news websites like The Guardian. Many younger people rely solely on social media for their news every day. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a big part of this. You know, for news sites, we have rules. Our editorial code says descriptions or depictions of graphic or violent details should be included only when essential to the facts of our journalism. So we have rules and and our rules sort of go to that distinction between informing people and traumatising them. But that's kind of being washed over, if you like, by the internet where things are shared not just to inform and not with any rules but often in order to shock, often in order to generate emotion in people, sometimes as propaganda. I mean, each side of the Israel-Gaza story is sharing a lot of really distressing material. The Israel Defence Forces are posting every couple of minutes, videos of them in Gaza and what they're doing. October 7 was covered in real time by Palestinian journalists. So the internet is awash with these things, which kind of makes our decision-making kind of all the more important, I think, because I I really want to create a site where we don't shy away from facts, but we present them with context and nuance. We're not just there to get a quick emotional reaction. We're there to present information in a way that helps people understand, not just makes them feel something. Another aspect of that is I think some social media sites like Facebook are actually enabling the move away from news where people are able to switch off because Facebook itself has said, we're not in the news business anymore. They've moved away from it. So people go and look at their feed and all they'll find is updates about people's cats and pets and, and the meal they had for dinner. You've got Twitter and, you know, other social media sites that are really, you see all this unfiltered content and news all the time, but a lot of people don't want that. They just want to mm. keep away from news. I thought our columnist in the UK, Simon Jenkins, wrote a really thoughtful piece about this. I'm not sure I 100% agree with him, but he made me think, which is, I guess, the best thing a columnist can do. And he said he had had to stop reading everything about Israel and Gaza. And he was shocked by his own response to that. But because he really believes that we owe it to our common humanity to not ignore inhumanity, but he felt like it was becoming, in a way, ghoulish, that there was just too much 
heat and not enough light. There was not enough understanding in it. And he finished by saying there has to be a limit. It is one thing to be reminded occasionally of the suffering of others and of our own impotence when it comes to changing the world around us. I cannot see that relentless real-time depiction of horror is instilling any virtue. We and our children are expected to witness screaming, bleeding, angry people night after night. This cannot increase public understanding of what is happening, only add to anger, discord and mental distress. I want to watch the news. What is being shown is something different. Now, again, I'm not sure I agree with him in going that far, but I understand where he's coming from with that. Yeah, I think you understand the emotion or the the visceral response that we have to uh, seeing horrific images on the TV and on social media. But I think the intellectual response to it has to be that some of these depictions of horror need to be illustrated in some way. Mm-hmm. I think what's going on in Gaza particularly and the relentless bombing and just the incredible closeness of humanity in that really tiny strip of the Middle East, it can only, the, the horror can only really be brought home in images in some way. No kind of description of that is really going to do justice. So, look, I agree with him in some ways, but also some of these things do need to be Mm. shown. But the question is where we draw the line. And I'm interested, we have that editorial code that I read out, which is where we draw the line. What I'm interested in is how that evolves over time when social media and many other places that people get their news from draws the line, you know, in a vastly different place. And I would be very uncomfortable in moving the line very far and traumatising readers, but I agree with you. You know, you have to tell the story. You have to tell the truth. It's just how far you go in terms of traumatising readers in order to tell the truth. Yeah, and look, those are conversations that happen yeah. every day. We'd have them and the news We have those desk. conversations and you work out where that line mm. is and it's not fixed. And we it disagree sometimes. And we disagree, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. It, I think the thing we're talking about here is how to grapple with that tension that you mentioned, Lenore, right? Like, mm. the thing that always sticks with me is this quote from investigative journalist at the SMH, Kate McClymont, when she says about the work of journalists, there will always be evil and it's our job not to turn away. Mm. But is there also a risk that we lose the impact of telling the truth about bad things because yes. there's just so much of it yeah. all the time? Absolutely. There is a danger that we desensitise people or that people just turn off the news altogether. News fatigue and crisis fatigue are real things. Crisis fatigue is sort of that people only can cope with kind of one crisis at a time. And I know um, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, has been vocal recently that he's really worried that because there is a crisis in Israel and Gaza, people will kind of be less attuned to the crisis in Ukraine. News fatigue or news avoidance is another and documented thing where it is documented that people are choosing to not watch the news some of the time at least, because they find it so distressing. I mean, we we really don't want to turn people off the news. Mm. Yeah, and I think the latest figures um, from the digital news report from the University of Canberra show that around 70% of Australians are switching off news or well, it's actively the second highest, news. I think. Second highest, yeah. 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 Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's in that 70% are avoiding news entirely, but what they are doing is either checking the news less often, around 30% of those. They're ignoring or scrolling past news that upsets them. That's another 30%. And then another 30% are avoiding particular news sources that either might upset them or they might disagree with. And people are avoiding news in different ways. So for people who identify as right-wing, they're avoiding news that has to do with, for example, social justice issues. 
there's also differences between male and female readers in in the types of news they avoid and news avoidance generally is higher amongst women than it is amongst men. Patrick, how do you factor news fatigue into the decisions about which stories you choose to highlight and how long you think they should stay prominent on the website? I think it's largely about how we do stories. So, for example, in climate change, every day you will have a report looking at the impact of climate change on an ecosystem or on the world generally or on, you know, people's health or on people's uh, well-being generally. And it can be overwhelming where its report says X about climate change. I think we need to tell find different ways of telling the story is the key one. And one of the examples is that we're at the moment talking to climate scientists who have worked on this issue for for decades and about their kind of the personal toll it's taken on them about the warnings that they told the government decades ago that you know that kind of missed opportunities for action so that's a different way of telling the same story but also I think what's really key is to provide people not just with the problems but also solutions so we have to provide hope in some way for people we have to look at Um, give people the space to imagine that things can actually be different. So, for example, on Israel-Gaza, we had Penny Wong talking about the two-state solution on the weekend, saying that it's not dead. There are opportunities. We had change in the 90s in this situation. We can imagine there's space for change again, even though it seems like everything is hopeless at the moment. Mm, I think, I mean, Pat's right, and that's what we try to do. I've got to admit that sometimes it's easier said than done. You know, I lead news conference every morning and most mornings I say, so who's got an idea for a bit of joy? And sometimes there's just crickets at that point. And that's not because people aren't really thinking about it, but it's just sometimes hard to think of joyful stories when there's so much, so many awful things happening in the world. And by joy, I don't mean confected things. I think our readers and listeners would see through that in a nanosecond. But as Pat says, things that have solutions in them. So people who are doing something about global heating, you know, businesses that are doing something, households that are doing something, our um, sustainable living column on a Saturday is an attempt to give people something that they can do or think about proactively that might actually move things in the right direction. And I think those stories usually are really well read. And I think it's really important to to publish them, to give balance and hope alongside, you know, so many really hard, difficult stories that we publish because we have to, because that's what's happening in the world. Yeah, I don't think that embracing positive news is an exercise in mindless optimism. I think there are ways that you can do it Mm. that Mm. actually advance you know, causes or solutions or alternatives in giving people yeah. the space to imagine that, yeah, things and can be different. And we also want to embrace mindful optimism, like all the stories about things that make life good and happy to live, like, you know, books and food and relationships and spirituality. And I must say people are reading those stories a lot as well, which tells me people, you know, after you've read about something really awful, you want to write, read something a bit life-affirming. So what would you both say to readers and listeners who are currently battling news fatigue but are also trying to stay informed and trying to be good citizens? I can say what I do, which is to try to consume news from places which give it to me with nuance and context, to read really widely, to not 
consume news from places that are just giving me short bursts of horror to instill an emotion but not actually give me very many facts. And sometimes I compartmentalise it. So for my day job, I have to cover the news in Australia. And I read Israel, I read everything we publish on Israel Gaza, but I read it in a block. And then I try to kind of give myself a break from it. And then I read it in another block. Because if I go back to it all day, I become almost obsessed or consumed with the horror of it. And it becomes really hard to do the rest of my job. That's how I cope. A few things I would say. Firstly, I think it's really great to be an active news consumer rather than a passive one. So if you're seeking out news, read what you're interested in reading and read what you think will help you understand the topic better. Don't just sit there and scroll through uh, social media to get it. I've deleted Twitter off my phone. Me too. Uh, I check out it at work during work hours to keep up with what's going on. But I find that that helps in that if I want to find something out about, you know, what's going on in the world, I go and seek it out again from a variety of sources to see what people have to say about it. And that puts you in control of the news cycle rather than just relying on what's given to you. Seek out what you're interested in and seek out what you think will help you understand the news cycle. The other thing I would say, which I think is really important, is you don't have to have the solution. You can read and there's a lot of things in the world that are complex and complicated and you're not going to even maybe understand them or you're not definitely not going to come up with a solution through doing it. That's not your job. Um, But, you know, what is important is... I think, still not to look away from um, things that are are terrible in the world and things that could be better. And I would really like to hear from listeners about what they would like more of and what they think about this topic because it is an active part of our daily decision-making as editors. Next, Wi-Fi cats and smart homes. Hi, I'm Patrick Keneally, National News Editor at Guardian Australia. Guardian Australia's Morning Mail is a quick roundup of the day's top stories, delivered directly to your inbox, bringing you reliable, accurate news from journalists you can trust. And it's free. Sign up at theguardian.com forward slash newsletter or simply search for Guardian Australia Newsletters. 
woke up very early this morning because my cat woke me up at 10 past six. They realised about that, the outage when their cat woke them up hungry for breakfast because the Wi-Fi connected cat feeder hadn't worked. Luna, <laughs> tapping on my head. So how's the feeder work? It gives the food at 10 past six. <laughs> so it's set on a, on a timer and out it comes. Yeah, through the Wi-Fi. That's yeah. so funny. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so uh, mm-hmm. I just thought that's a good illustration of how much technology or sp- particularly relying on broadband has is, is sort of infiltrated every aspect of our lives. Also, it's not a great thing when you're a website that relies, you know, on people reading the news mostly on their phones mm. for, uh, you know, a lot of Australia to, to be off there. Having said that, we had a very good a lot day of people read the news. a lot of people read the news and wanted to find out what was yeah. happening. I had the same story and obviously there are many, many questions uh, coming after that outage about, you know, what Optus is now obliged to do, how it happened, et cetera. But on a personal level, I feel really vindicated at not having a smart home. <laughs> Thanks very much, Lenore. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks. That was Guardian Australia's Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and National News Editor Patrick Keneally. And if you want to let us know what you think about news fatigue, send us an email at australia.fullstory@theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning, who also composed our theme music. The executive producer was Miles Martignoni. I'm Jane Lee, and Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with a regular episode of Full Story for you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.